So this is, we are in this end of October in southern England. <coughs> it's part of the planet. It's time of year. It's getting colder. And uh, when us human beings start thinking about trying to stay warm and worrying about warmth and keeping warm and it still gets cold and <laughs> yeah. no, I certainly see my, myself sometimes that sense of oh, it's winter again, oh goodness, another four months of greyness and coldness and wearing hats all the time and scurrying from one shelter to another uh, this kind of fragility of the human condition so we create all kinds of things to try and protect ourselves and comfort ourselves and make it more like we can banish the cold and the dark and yet always it comes back again gets in so here we are, night is dark we try to banish it with our electric light and the electric light blows <laughs> night is always dark, that's what it means <laughs> winter is cold, that's what it means <laughs> we uh, have our attempts uh, make it so that we can manage, survive, feel settled. Hmm. But you can also kind of recognize how how much uh, technology goes into trying to make the world fit what we would most like, feel most pleased and comforted and least threatened by, you know, and that, so it's kind of quite remarkable possibilities of people living up more or less anywhere on the planet, planetary surface, incredibly desolate places and cold places, blowing, getting blown out into space and landing on the moon, walking around and coming back again, uh, you know, these things we can, we can do now, you know. A sense of freedom to to be and explore and you know. and yet uh, there's also kind of fundamental problems remaining within this so the degree to which we want to actually you know the problems of Jealousy and fear and greed and competition. Things that occur between human beings which have made us really, though we have achieved success in our own terms to a certain degree, it's been quite a cost for the rest of the planetary species we kind of ripped off their habitat and shot everything that's anything halfway near as big as we are and could possibly be injurious to human life and kind of chopped down mountains and blocked up 
rivers and things so that other creatures just have to go to the wall so that we will be more comfortable and our electricity will come in on time and our um, we'll get our food processed in the way we most like it and we'll be able to wear high-tech gear and walk over the face of the moon as is our right as human beings and it's quite a price gets paid and the for all this possibilities and our reluctance our willingness our unwillingness to be checked to be to not have to, to have boundaries you know to be able to say no you can't do that you sorry that's not possible for you you can't go there you know human beings aren't designed for that you have to live within these limits and you have to experience some pain and some discomfort and you have to wait for things and so that if we don't actually kind of get this message and we become increasingly more impatient, demanding, arrogant and um, imperialist we take over the whole universe, I'm sure we could <laughs> you know, harness the stars so that we can you know, watch super videos, like feely videos broadcast inside our brains any moment we feel bored. You know, and for that, we're going to milk some planet drive, all its special minerals or whatever. So we can have this possibility. And why should I not have it? It's my right as a human being. And it's kind of the way that the, uh, you know, this kind of increasing self-centeredness of the human spirit is really blight on the cosmos and also it doesn't actually achieve what it's, what it's aiming to achieve because people, we, we can get discontent more readily over I had to wait five seconds for my computer to come on five seconds, you know, this damn thing doesn't work properly I wrote an email and you, you know it took five seconds for that thing to, to click in. What's the matter with it? Give it a kick. Why should I have to wait five seconds? Why should I have to wait at all? <laughs> One second. <laughs> so, see the, <laughs> this is get, even in kind of our pretty low, low key, low standards. See, so used to, people write a letter and you send a letter and you maybe get the letter about three or four days later and then you write the letter, write a reply maybe the next day, so in a week the whole transaction has occurred and now he will send you an email, they want to reply this afternoon not, not in a week's time, well, no, you know why should you make me wait? You're making me wait because you're too lazy to get upwardly mobile and learn how to handle an email why are you stopping me being, being effective? You've been deliberately Luddite. You know? So you, you get this kind of uh, demands to, to go way upwardly mobile. You know? <coughs> Up, upwardly, upwardly, where's my upward going to take you? Higher degrees of impatience and frustration. And, uh, you know, I think it's actually, think about writing a letter was you had to sit down and think about it and scribble it down. Probably the emails and phones, you can just 
blab off the most immediate heated impulse and get it down there, down the tube into somebody else's mind. And, think, and a day later, you think, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Whereas uh, the communication was a bit more delayed, you didn't have such, <laughs> you didn't, just couldn't cause so much damage. <laughs> So you were to kind of regard on regards these these uh, standards of advancement with some mm, reservations, not that one's trying to make some standard of, against it. Because certainly, kind of, you know, this can happen. So you, but just to be aware of, like, just getting some feeling of, or well, what are we trying to do? Where, as human beings, what's going to benefit us most? Well, you look at the planet, look at how we are with each other. You know, feel pretty nasty to each other a lot of the time. You know, when you the more high your expectations are of comfort and convenience, the more intolerant one gets. Road rage and people blowing up each other. And standards going up, and then people feel deprived they're not getting the best, and so on. And uh, all this stuff going on. And it was noticeable almost immediately. My notices in, in as I was in London recently, people are commenting almost whenever there's a, some kind of crisis, something breaks down, people start being nice to each other. You know, train goes, train crash, or something, still people start cooperating. and taking each other in, giving each other cups of tea, and then as soon as everything's working again, people start getting nasty, vicious, and impatient again. <laughs> Get out of my way. You know? and, then, and then when things break down, oh, oh you must come home and you know, look after you. you know? it's, 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 uh, I mean, what, what, which is better? You know? Really. But in certainly my own feeling for this is in line with the insight of the Buddha that uh, the suffering and stress and the, and the release from that is the most important thing uh, and this happens in one's own heart essentially Suffering, release from suffering and stress is not purely something that's just going to benefit me. But if I'm re- if I'm not getting so, so much of this inner tension and anguish and impatience and frustration and restlessness and jealousy and conceit and arrogance and so forth, I'm likely to be producing a lot less harmful effects on other other people and the planet at large. You know, so it, this ending of suffering rather than the attainment of comfort. Is, is the approach. Sometimes people think it sounds very pessimistic, you know, suffering and stress and dukkha, everything's miserable. But it's actually saying if you focus on where you experience suffering and stress, where that's happening for you, not what caught, not, you know, who's prob- who, who did it to you, but actually where you're feeling it right now and how you can, what it does to you. Focusing on that, and then beginning to, there's a way of releasing that. 
and you come to a, some sense of balance and equilibrium where there's a natural broadening of heart, uh, wisdom, compassion, patience, joy, love. These things just happen quite naturally. And that's the beauty of it, that we don't have to try to be so good or have these things as great ideals. You should be more this, that and the other. But it happens quite naturally because these are, this is the natural state of health. You know, when the heart is healthy, why not be loving, compassionate? It feels good. Why not be patient? It feels good. It feels much better to be patient than to be impatient. You know, why not be generous? It feels nice being generous. It feels better than kind of hanging on and wanting this and wanting that. It doesn't feel good at all. So, you know, just begin to kind of contemplate this and understand this. This is the Four Noble Truths, suffering the origin, the cessation and the path. And to me this, uh, this is a very useful, practical, um, present moment, every moment, um, direction of where one can solve the dilemma of the present moment as it's happening. Things, you know, going wrong. Many teachers point out nothing's actually going, you know, things have their nature is to, like the lights, they're not going wrong, they're just doing what things do. They live for a certain while and they they die. (laughs) It's not to say that we we just kind of let everything rot away, but they say, okay, well, You know, just considering in one's heart how much, how much is there, you know, how much disappointment is there, or how much irritation is there, and how much can we just kind of adapt. Mm. So pretty soon the, the, heater will, the heat will be going from Chittas for a few days, Chittas Monastery, often from some amazing development of parameter from my kuti which will be nice and warm and I'll because of my immense virtues I have a company of it. <laughs> good karma and so forth <laughs> so then we see well you know what, what do we do with that do you think oh goodness this shouldn't be this way or you know why can't we ever get a decent heating system or it's going off because we're getting someone in to fix it so you have to switch it all off for a while and then you kind of see what one makes of that. What one makes of the idea, even. Whether you feel fed up, <coughs> irritated by it, it's a nuisance, or we can think, oh, this might be an opportunity to practice. <coughs> Some kind of practice can go here. I could actually, what does, what does cold do? <coughs> Maybe I could, you know, um, wear more clothes or share my duvet with a friend. <laughs> These human bodies are quite warm things. <laughs> you know, certainly one doesn't want to make some kind of you know, principle 
out of being miserable, out of making it as hard as possible, just being out of sense when there's difficulties come up, hardships come up, struggles come up. Well, what, what's that doing to me? You know, how can I? How can I adapt? How can I change? How can I shift? And generally, the nice th- most people find that in almost naturally that when there's a difficulty, they start to become more sharing and considerate and generous and relax a bit and get more good-humoured. It seems to be quite a natural result. And they think, well, it's funny. It was such a big deal after all. You know, I've been hanging on to this thing. It shouldn't be, you know, as if I needed it all the time. And actually, great. And then when I got to, when I was travelling in India, and then, uh, you know, I wanted to carry as little as possible, but I had a water filter, and a clean clock, and, um, you know, little, little Swiss Army knives, as I could take shoe, um, stones out of horses' hoops on the way. Uh, you know, you never know when you're going to meet a horse in India with a stone in its hoof, and scaling fish, and things like that. <laughs> fish descaler and all this stuff you know little bits and pieces that were quite handy and then I got this attack by these robbers who ripped everything took everything nothing all I had was my sandals bandage around my foot which, and my, sub, my sabong my lower robe that was it and a, a kind of sash that was so I could just tie it tie because I took my belt as well so I could tie this sabong on with this kind of piece of cloth. That was it. You know. The beauty about it was uh, you've been carrying this, lugging this, you know, ten kilos of gear around on your back every day, sitting over it. Whenever you go down to a tea shop, you put it down. You make sure you've got your one hand on it. Nobody's going to take this away. Get on a train. You make sure that you're sitting on top of it, or it's underneath your your seat, so nobody nicks it. Or, you know, you develop some system whereby you've always got your eye on it to make sure it walks off it. I mean, this thing, you know, and then you put it on your back, and oh, here we go again, off into the heat, dust, grime, this thing weighing you down. My little inflatable mat, like I could lie down at night and be comfortable. My little water bottle and my Swiss Army knife, looking for that horse, and so on. <laughs> water filter, water pump, and make sure I didn't get any bugs and things like that. Whole lot, boom, gone. I think, wow, what a relief. (laughs) 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 Here I am, still alive. Still able to stand up and walk around. You know, I don't know whether I'm going to survive another night. But you never know, do you? And then people see and say, oh, please, it looks like you look like you need something. Here, have some food. Here, have some water. Even somebody even gave me a Swiss Army knife, <laughs> so that you you know you you kind of you can go through these things and you you find that somehow the system the human system is built to adapt and survive and other human beings you know if you if you're just open and at ease tend to empathise this is what we have this possibility whereas we come on from positions of I am this and you should that and I'm one of these and you're one of those then the empathy dies 
just imagine, you know, like if, uh, if I say, well, I'm a Buddhist monk and the duty of the lay people is to support me. You make a lot of merit by giving me food. This is what you should be doing. Stuck up pig. <laughs> I wouldn't blame you, you know. Just <laughs> all that. But if one, you know, tries to live a life where it's honest and open and saying, well, you know, if nobody feeds us, we don't eat, but we'll, you know, have to bear with that. And uh, please, please make you know, a place you can meditate. Oh, I'd like to help out. What can I do? Well, oh, the monks can't can't grow food. Well, I'll give them some food. Why not? And that's the way it should be, really. Just trying to get that empathy for, you know, the, the sense of being unprotected and vulnerable and being able to bear with that is actually, to my mind, that's, that's the inspiring thing because that's what unites us all. We're all vulnerable. We're all unprotected. We all don't want to die. We don't want pain. And once we actually relate to each other on that level, then we're all prepared to share and help and support and do what we can. You know, so somebody says to me, "Well, you're t- you know you're a Buddhist, but you should be teaching the Dharma. I want you to teach me the Dharma every day." I think, oh God, I get pain. Why don't you go and read a book or something? You know, but then somebody says, "Oh." And I've got some difficulties. You, you immediately you want to you want to help, don't you? If I've got something I can offer. But if it's like it becomes a kind of career, then you either get conceited or fed up with it or burdened with it, or feel you get a missionary zeal to tell everybody how they should behave. And all these things are the ways in which you know, the, the, the beauty of relationship and empathy and actually meeting the world as it is gets, gets distorted into making it more um, institutionalized or more convenient or more packaged in some way. Mm-hmm. So re- recently somebody with good intention sent us this little checklist of ways we could improve the monastery and there's kind of list of things that the work monk, work nun could do and you know proper effective management studies and this that and the other (laughs) and uh, then how the Dhamma toy teaching could be better brought across if there's more of this and more psychological understanding and more in-depth dialogue and things like that and so okay I'll pin it up on the board People start to get so angry, <laughs> you know, being told what they should be. So, well, well, we'll just take that down and throw it away and say thank you for the intention. Because <laughs> what what is it actually? That kind of idealism, you know, to make it right is because you, know, you can trust that the idea is to somehow make it better. But what's actually happening is we are shifting out of a kind of the place where we are just open and trying to allow things to happen from a natural un, un, untutored empathy and un, untutored clarity and un, untutored wisdom which although it, you can't predict it is actually something that you know is far more valuable 
because then you're not always holding it with anxiety about how good it's going to be or with um, you know trying to impress somebody or trying to make it the best which held with anxiety and fear and then at the end of the day you think no oh, it could have been better I should have and we only need this and then you get this continual sense of generating suffering through trying to get it right rather than trusting that if one stops suffering it is right if you stop the sense of agitation and fear and trying to trying to be perfect yeah. then from that comes that which is the most beautiful and sustaining and easeful and happy and convivial and heartful and these are the things that really enrich the human experience just, you know, just consider this when you see how people from brilliant intelligence can create the most wonderful structures and economic systems and political ideas and technological stuff and still be crabby and miserable and unsatisfied with it what actually happens in all that why does intent why does these good intentions go out of tune what happens there yeah. I mean I'm sure all these all these intentions are, are, are good and meant well but what actually happens yeah. in the when we consider the the human system you have these uh, say that the, in the Buddha's teaching the world begins and ends in our own bodies with their consciousness and perceptions <coughs> everything begins and ends here there's no, no problem with something outside of this hmm. suffering begins and ends here so we have this system this human system with these sense organs and six senses that define objects the eye, the ear, the nose, the sense of touch and the thinking or the intellect mind is these define particular objects so your eye tells you that's says that, that it, it forms an object for you something that's not you right? you look and you see all the things that are not you they're objects, they're out there they're other than me the ear hears sounds it doesn't hear me, it hears sounds hmm? so I might hear the sound of my voice but that particular moment that sound of my voice is an object occurring in my consciousness, isn't it? Yeah? so even this very body when you look at it, oh that's happening to me is the, is the sense, when you attend to it this feeling is happening to me um, this physical form is something I can regard or, or bear it or think about I have an opinion about me that's an object I can create myself as an object I'm good, I'm bad, I'm stupid, I'm wonderful I'm in need, I'm pathetic, I'm loved, I'm unloved I should be more, I should be this, I should be this, I should be that this is the way the mind creates objects and its potential is vast because the mind <laughs> there's, there's, no, there's no limit, you know with the eye you can only see a certain spectrum of things you know, that's actually in the vicinity it's pretty limited and here you can hear only a certain range of sound 
mind, you can, you know, I can think of little green-eyed men from Venus, and that's an object in my mind. I can, I can even draw one now if I wanted to. You know, I can create anything in my mind. You know, I can create. Uh, remember one time I just had a piece of crayon and I drew this, just did a streak on a piece of paper, this this crayon, and looked at it. And after a while, it became a gigantic fish. And I could draw it into a fish, and a whole story arose just around this streak of colour. And my mind could create something out of that. My mind could create me as just about anything, from the most pathetic example the human species ever ever developed, <laughs> to high-minded noble aspirant, to deeply tragically misunderstood. <laughs> it's never that great a picture. <laughs> But it, it can range, you know, and uh, it all fits. You know, the mind is a magician. And all these, but all I can actually honestly know is all these are objects in my mind. All I ever know about you is an object in my mind. Hmm? That's all I, can, all I know, all that my mind can do is create an object. But there's also a very strong, powerful, subjective experience, isn't there? Something's touching me. Something's getting at me. I feel frightened. I feel happy. You know, I'm, I'm moved. I'm inspired. Something, you know, and that's, that's, not, that's not an object. That's something that's kind of... It's not localised. Suddenly it becomes a global experience. I can't say... There, there, there's the fears out there. It's just something that's, it, it's the feeling is subjective. But then, when you try to, so this this subjective sense seems to be, you know, the the centre of it all, doesn't it? Because in this subjective sense is where these impulses arise. Because something's happening to me, I'm going to do something about it. Me, me is the passive experience of the subject, and I is the active one. Mm. Because this happens to me, I'm going to. Yeah. So that's really crucial because there you're right at the at the centre of what of what, how one is affected and how one responds. And these must be the mo- these are the crucial. Um, core experiences, the things that determine our lives, determine our reality. And uh, this is where the feeling is. And basically, if something feels unpleasant, or something unpleasant is happening to me, I'm definitely going to get out of it if I can. I'm going to resist it, I'm going to fight it, I'm going to do anything I can to stop that happening to me. That's the instinct. And there are different ways that one can do that. You can directly, you know, fight back, or you can kind of shut down and defend yourself, or you can run away. So, so these are called the fight, flight, and freeze. That's that's those are the possibilities. You freeze. You've got to either shut down and try not to feel anything or go numb, pass out, or something like that. Withdraw, 
from the, from that experience. Now this is this is really where I am, right in this feeling experience. This is this is mind in a different sense. So I'll use the word heart for that, even though it's it's limited and can give you wrong, slightly wrong impressions. It's the affective sense, which is the feeling, where feeling occurs. And it's where impulse, volition occurs. And it's even where um, meaning occurs, or perception, meaning, significance, interpretation. It's cognitive. So it's not purely some kind of emotional or reactive thing, it's also cognitive. Hmm? Which means that when something happens, there's an, inter- an immediate interpretation. You hear, you hear a loud crash, and there's danger. You don't think it, something goes danger. And then maybe you, that's an interpretation, because all the ear heard was bang. Bang just means bang. But the effective sense goes danger. Hmm. Yeah. Something happens very quickly or unexpectedly, the effective sense goes threat. Danger, threat. Hmm. So something like that. You know, these are things that occur. And we're all wired like that. We're all instinctively wired like that. Because this affective sense is, if you like, a fundamental, you know, sensory experience of survival. Yeah. So there's the danger sense, or it's about where's where's the pleasure or where's the nourishment. So it's a hunting instinct. You know, so it tastes good, and there's a <laughs> lunge towards it. it. Smells good. You know, something lunges towards it. Whether you actually act that out or not, you can feel something well up push towards that. It doesn't smell good. The nose just smells a smell. There's nothing good about it. That interpretation occurs in the heart. You know, with, uh, so this, this is, you know, where naturally, so you just kind of acknowledge that that system, that effective system. Problem can occur when when we take those senses and those triggers and this kind of wavering thing, which is going on wavering a lot of the time. It's fluctuating. It's kind of like a continual feelers, feeling out the environment, feeling out the system, feeling out what's going on. You know. How long is this talk going to go on for? Will it be comfortable? Will I be interested? Is it going to be boring? You know, am I going to lose it? Da, 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 da. Should I be here? Would it be all right to sneak out the back? You know? <laughs> <laughs> How's this going to be for me? Will it be uncomfortable, not interesting? And uh, you know, is it all right? And things like that. <laughs> little things going on. You know, um, so that. You know, this is, it's humbling to see that sometimes we, when we see just how how much of this there is, because it's so wavering and and so much geared towards this self-interest. That's the subjective sense. 
problem comes when we start to act at that out you know, take it literally act it out any, any sign of something feeling slightly uncomfortable I'm going to definitely resist that it should never happen I should never feel any sense of threat I should always feel comfortable and at ease I should never feel any sense of being alone I should always feel companion, you know, accompanied and so forth I should never feel any sense of feeling slightly less I should always feel I'm as good as everybody else I'm on top of everything but the system is designed you know, to, to keep coming up with those meanings how, how you want to actually hold those meanings we can have some choice over because in that system is the potential for, for a feeling of continual lack and inadequacy if you take it literally hmm? there's always something it's going to say that would be nice if I had one of those there's always something it's going to say well it was nice if it wasn't one of those you know there's always something saying this isn't this isn't doesn't suit me I, you know it might even be you know I might even be made to look foolish or degraded by this that, that's the nature of it it does that and how much but we do have the possibility with awareness to own that and say well is this, is this really the case and we don't own it then you get what we have which is the, that sense of self-interest takes over the universe and not only do we um, take over the universe but also we do ourselves the gross um, injustice or we, uh, of thinking that we, could, we need all this stuff to be able to cope and then when we have these tremendous needs then we start demanding or jealous competition, wars it all begins with this So you can see that, that, that you know, the global level of it, the gross overconsumption of certain cultures leads to the gross impoverishment of other cultures, naturally jealousy, resentment, fear, defence, war. Why is it that some people feel they have the absolute right to eat so much food they grow gross and uh, have every kind of food possible delivered to their door um, you know, and that, that's totally okay. And that you sh- the desert should produce grass, so I'm going to drain off the fresh water so that I can have a nice lawn. Why shouldn't I? Rather than, well, I live in a desert, deserts are like this. You know, I live in this country, the food here is like this. And adapt. Because that sense of this, um, this system, this subjective system, is one that is, is designed to give rise to, to the feelings of pleasure and pain. And pleasure and pain have this, what those feelings really are, they're a push, they're a charge that runs through the system. When you feel pleasure, it's a particular run of energy through the system that means more linger with that, dwell in that 
absorb into that, extend yourself into that. You just think of, or even produce something that's physically um, pleasing. And you can feel your system just turns towards that and wants to dwell in it. And there's something that's uncomfortable, like just pinching your finger. And you can feel your energy and your mind is kind of tightening against that, wanting to draw away from it. Now, that can occur with any of these physical, limited senses, such as the ear, the eye, the nose, the tongue, and the body. But when the, when the thinking mind gets to work, there's an infinite range of possible pleasure and displeasure that can be created. Yeah. Wouldn't it be nice if this Dhamma hall was covered with a gigantic airbed so we didn't have to have the pain in our knees of sitting here on this floor? That's a jolly good idea. Sounds completely reasonable now, think of it. What a good idea. And we had kind of inflatable back rests <laughs> here to hold your back up. And wherever you sat, you could just sort of make a little sound and then these backrests would come down and find you so you wouldn't even have to go and look for them. And you wouldn't have to queue up, you just sit there and a backrest would immediately appear behind you, inflatable and moulded to your body and warm as well. What a joy. In fact, I feel cheated that I'm not, I haven't got one. <laughs> and if they had one in Amrawadi, those systems in Amrawadi, you think... How can we dare to survive at Chithurst without one of those? You know? This is, you know, this is normal, isn't it? So you, one mind can create almost anything as a pleasant object, and then the subjective system takes over with it. And we could do this with our social systems. What would be the you know, democratic, communalistic, feudalistic, whatever it is, you know, the best. Um, equality, fairness, freedom, so forth. And then we can start to calibrate you know, degrees. Once you've created these ideas, ideals, then you can see how right now we're not meeting it. You know? now, right now we're not meeting these things. So this is when it starts to run away. This internal subjectivity gets taken literally. It's a system that's designed to experience degrees of discontent in order to, to, you know, give some motivations about what we're doing. But when you can and then it gets translated by the thinking mind into possibilities and plans and or regrets and complaints. The beauty of the way out is recognizing this this our, our subjective system, which is chitta, it's called the heart, can also be made um, happy. By, by itself, just by, by soothing it. 
In other words, rather than, you know, picking up its discontent and translating it into ex- the external senses and external action, say, what's it like just to feel the heart and relax? What's it like to feel all that movement of, of intention and impulse and perceptions? And just hold it there and just gently breathe through it and, qu- and breathe into it express loving kindness towards it be, be gentle with it be firm with it it can be trained and then in the very same place where we're sitting suddenly the world feels different so the irony of it is the, the, as the Buddha was once asked um, about uh, you know pleasure and, pleasure and pain and uh, and in, in his, you know, saying, well, you know, you've given up all kinds of pleasure. You might, your life, is, you've given up every kind of pleasure. He was a prince. He's given up his palaces and his dancing girls and his luxurious food to live out in some sweaty old jungle. And so he said, well, your, your teaching is about getting, you know, developing more and more pain and suffering in your life. And he said, no, I can sit under a tree for seven days and nights completely still and feel totally blissful. Uh, the king of Magadha is continually worried with all his jewels and all his property that somebody's going to kill him. Somebody's going to poison his food. Some neighbouring prince is going to come and attack his territory. You know, his son might, as his son actually, actually did, his son assassinated him. You know. So the king of Magadha can't sleep one peaceful night where I can stay awake for seven feeling happy. Because it's that shift from the sen- external senses to just dealing directly with the chitta. Calming it, steadying it, brightening it, lifting it, loving it, firming it, stabilizing it. And this is, you know, was to remember this every situation that you're in in your life that's domestic or political whatever that that welling out into external circumstance as being the source of your suffering and your indignation and your um, frustration that is delusion I'm not saying these things can't trigger off these very powerful patterns which are chittas have got into but every time one triggers off you know well there it is again and you see some of these common patterns coming up the resentment fear worry feeling of inadequacy you come to another situation which triggers off the feeling that you're not good enough. So we can desperately try to find some way in which people will tell us we're good enough or we look good enough or we dress so that we look confident and powerful and we do this and the other. Still at the end of the day, something's going to get in there and remind us of that sense of I'm not good enough, I'm inadequate, I've got to do something else to make myself good enough. I do done this myself. They really recognise one's doing it, but you know when you get into 
you know, situation where um, you can feel responsible for a lot of things, for other people's welfare and suffering, for our community, for sangha, for whatever. You know, you get to really believe in that as some ultimate state. This isn't something one does consciously. You don't, you know, not some foolish thing. But it starts to creep over you because enough people tell you it. <laughs> you start and act like it. Oh, okay. And then you think, whatever I do, it's not quite enough, is it? If only I, I was a bit more attentive, I'd be good enough. I'd be able to do this. If only I was a bit wiser. If only if my samadhi was a bit stronger. If only I was a bit more loving and receptive. If only I was more genial and easygoing. So people would kind of feel more relaxed with me. But not too relaxed. Because if only I was a bit clearer, I'd be able to get to people's funny business and point out right into their delusion. Nobody would pull the wool over my eyes. As soon as somebody kind of I'd be able to pinpoint exactly where the delusion was. I was a bit sharper and clearer and fearless and compassionate, compassionately fearless and at ease and relaxed and cuddly and bright as well. (laughs) (laughs) Then I'd be good enough. I'd be good enough then, wouldn't I? I'm not good enough now though. I wasn't good enough last year. I wonder if I'll ever get good enough. And you know, after a while, finally the message gets home. Let's face it, you're never going to be good enough. So that's good enough, isn't it? (laughs) That has to be good enough. Because this kind of effective sense, one doesn't want to be, you know, with the unconsolable or the feeling of can't do this. That meaning, that perception, is a disagreeable one. I see, I see people having problems, and somehow that that I suppose I've got to find an answer to. It. I should, or I could find an answer to it. And that's a very disagreeable perception that I can't do that. I don't like that perception. It makes me feel hopeless and useless. I don't want to feel hopeless and useful, useless. I want to feel clear and adequate and efficient and effective. I want to be that way. I don't like that other perception. But as a perception, that one can then kind of impose that as some st- statement of what this. I should be as an, as an object. How can I be an object in my own mind? I'm trying to be a, an object, a perfect object in my own mind. How many of you, you know, really realize that your, your meditation is perfect? Anybody that their meditation is perfect? <laughs> Dangerous question, huh? If you say it is, you're wrong. If you say it isn't, you're wrong. <laughs> just like this (laughs) but you know it's like when is it ever going to be right and good enough 
And do you ever examine what that would actually mean? What's the end of the sentence that starts off with, if I was good enough, if I was a good enough meditator, then. If I was a wise enough person, then. If I was younger, then. If I was brighter, then I would. What's the end of that sentence? What would you be? What would you be if you were perfect? Just you know, Then why don't you just do that? <laughs> and I think, what would I be? I know what I'd be. I'd be relaxed. <laughs> so why don't I just relax? <laughs> and, you know, because the, the rest of it, trying to make it you get tense, nervous, anxious, worried, guilty, burdened, stressed. Because what? The sensory world is like this. It gets dark, it gets cold, it dies, it breaks, it hurts, it jumps, it leaps, it bites, it has these things in it. And then on the mental level, it's unfair. It's inadequate. It's corrupt. Yeah. On the mental level, it's like that, isn't it? It's not fair, it's corrupt, it's deceptive, there's violence, it's ignorant, you know, all these kinds of things. Say, well, I should do something about that. Stop it being that way. If I was good enough, I'd stop it being that way. But, you know, when you, you realize that your, those interpretations are based on what? What is fair? Where is it? Where is it? What is pure? Where is it? Has it ever been there? <laughs> you know, there are moments when it kind of teeters like that and it teeters in and it teeters out. Who's getting exactly exactly what they need and nothing has been asked of them that's beyond their what they want? You know, who's getting that? And any one of us can feel any day, well, I'm going to be a rough deal. I do all the work here. I carry the weight here. Nobody listens to me. You know, I'm having the hard time. You know, anyone's going to feel for different reasons. You know, I did the sewage, nobody else does the sewage. I did the teaching, nobody else does the teaching. <laughs> I did the washing up. I did the washing up yesterday. <laughs> it's not fair. I did the cooking. I made the gruel. I swept the chimney, you know. I had to walk up from the, the hill. I had to walk down the hill. I didn't get this. I didn't, you know, any one of us can find some reason. We'll back up this feeling of it, it being wrong and unfair and so forth. And this really is a challenge for us. Are we supposed to just kind of go along like completely passive? You know, on a, you know, allowing, just on acting on our wholesome impulses. But you recognize that really the, the, the source of happiness is when you in your own effective system you don't bring up hatred 
jealousy, fear, mistrust, rage, you know, when you don't bring up and affirm those things, you feel better, you know. When you do, you feel bad. That's something, you know, we can't say immediately stop. We can actually get to that and how can I deal with that? How can I? Hmm? The conceit and the, and the blaming and all that, we can, something we can deal with. And then you feel better. Even if you are kind of taking food to the pig farm every day and nobody else is doing it. Who cares? So what? So that when you're freeing up the chitta, then you realize you've got the capacity to do an enormous number of things and to feel okay with it. You feel as the lowest, as the least regarded, you can feel fine, that's okay, I don't need it, you know. I don't need to be things to be fair and right and proper and best and perfect and comfortable and convenient. I don't need it, you know. Because I've got this. So you get the perception. Be really aware of perception, of what, what we interpret. It's not that it shouldn't be there. It's not that you shouldn't have these things. But these are signals saying, wait a minute, get to that. You know, get, on, get with that one. Feel how you're getting wound up or pushed down or feeling depressed. Or what's happening? You know, it's not that these things shouldn't happen. Suffering is like a, a guy tapping us on the shoulder saying, wake up, wake up to the fact of what perception's about what meaning is about, what feeling is about, wake up to it. Otherwise it's going to drive you nuts. You know, and you create all kinds of un- unskillful pain for yourself and others. So this kind of this, well, this emotional, um, in- perceptual interpretations and moods and things like that, they are they're reminders to us. Not that we shouldn't have them. And if you're really interested you know, in, in, in practice, then you must deliberately seek it out. Seek out what, what isn't fair. Mm. Seek out what's uncomfortable. Mm. And then when you seek it out, it's no longer un- uncomfortable. Because, <laughs> you know, when you, because you, you've, moved, you've disbanded that perception of this shouldn't happen. You know, Remember when I was trying to um, one time on a, a rains retreat at Amrawadi, which I, I you generally take these make some kind of determination in, the, in you know vow of something you do or not do during this rains retreat. This rains retreat, not this one, but this particular retreat I'm talking about, Amrawadi, which is three months long. So I won't complain about anything. That was, a, that was a tough one. Because um, it didn't mean I was verbalised. I wouldn't even complain in my mind about it. I wouldn't go, no, no, no. I don't see why I should have to do that. Because nobody ever does that. I wouldn't be doing that, which my mind would do a lot of the time. Who does he think he is? She talks too much, doesn't she? <laughs> don't say that. These kind of 
things come up, you know. <laughs> oh, when, that's, when that happens, I've just got to just stop, let go, relax, you know. So I got pretty loose, because when you're living with 40 people, there's a lot of complaining going on. You know, about he's cl- clumsy, insensitive, lazy, doesn't do his share, talks too much, conceited, thinks he knows it all. <laughs> Power trip. <laughs> Not like me, you know. <laughs> so I stopped doing that. Goodness, see, that was a struggle. I didn't realize how much I complained in my mind, I criticized everything. And it gets so difficult, you know, in this kind of mind festering way that towards the end of it, I thought, well, you know, I can do is I just you know, if I keep trying to placate this, then I'll just make it so I've really got something to complain about. Just really rev up, rev up the complaining system. So I decided I'd set my alarm clock half an hour earlier. That's always good for com- the complaining mind. You know, so I get up at 3 o'clock rather than 3.30. So I mean, oh, get up. <laughs> and then get up immediately and then go outside I've got some clothes on, <laughs> and uh, just go bow, bow to the stupa in the field. So the idea was, whatever was in my mind, I would bow to it. So I just, if I had hatred in my mind, I just put it on the, on the stupa and bow to the hatred. Say, lovely hatred, good to see you. You know, dullness, hello, dullness, great, great, glad you're still there, and bow to the dullness. You know, <coughs> feeling of, why did I do this stupid vow, great. Bound to that. <laughs> so I just do this. Right? So I didn't mind my mind complaining. You know, you can complain all it liked. I wasn't going to be complain about my complaining, or if it just let it blow. You know, it was very, very useful. Sometimes I go out and it's pouring with rain. Right? So okay, so you just bow in the rain, get wet. Feel yourself going, oh, rain, I don't, I don't need to do this. You feel yourself kind of trying to feel like it's very cold and unpleasant. And uh, it really gave me some way of, of contemplating. You know, not that I sort of, my mind is always sort of sweet and gentle loving, but to actually, actually understand or fully comprehend, be fully complex aware of the complaining, jealous, competitive, unfair, all these things, and just listen to these voices as they're blowing away, and feel them in the body, and say, sadhu, sadhu, very nice, very nice, I don't mind, it's fine with me. So, you know, that, that determination, intention, to really handle suffering, rather than feel something's going wrong. And over a period of time, that whole energy of that just ebbed away. And you're left with the, the heart. Something, gives, something relaxes. Whereas I'm always trying to find ways in which I won't feel those those feelings, 
You won't have those thoughts or impressions. Or if somebody else has those thoughts and impressions, they think, oh, she's not worthy. How dare she? How disgusting. You know, Buddhist nun, Buddhist monk, should do this, shouldn't say that. They start getting righteous. But then I can recognize more as anything anybody else says, I could, <laughs> I could do that too. <laughs> you know, so you're not really shocked or create anything out of it. And this is so you clear away this delusion of the idea of myself. And with that you get a sense of compassion for the, the, this system. This, uh, and then when you have compassion for it, you start to love it and hold it gently. And it begins to receive what it really needed. Their own presence, our own empathy, our own stillness within that. And you don't ask the world to take the pain away. You don't ask the world to take the loneliness away, the hurtfulness, the sharpness, the coldness. You don't ask the world that you can't do it. It's never been, we've never been able to do it. Centuries, millennia, we've never been able to do it. We can't do it. We can't take the pain away. But we can in this way immediately we can we can do that about a little while ago a week or so ago I was out on the Suffolk coast and uh, going for a walk along this beach shingle beach walking shingle beach you start walking, he's trudging through the shingle along this flat coastline, the sea flushing in, slushing out, coastline trudging and trudging and trudging. Where are you going? Where, where, do, where, do you, where is there to get to? And it suddenly becomes very clear when the, when the land is that simple. You've just got this beach, sea, horizon, you just keep trudging. And something is trying to get to the place where there'll be the good view, is it? Or the. What, what are you, where are you going? And I just could feel this sense of trying to get somewhere, and just walk and walk and walk. And then gradually, after a while, the, the mind would start to relax its desire and its push. And then it thought, And you get the feeling of, well, there's nowhere to go, so I might as well go home again. And then I always try and find a way, try to walk, just start walking back. But because the mind had given up trying to get anywhere, it's like suddenly, you know, there's a quality of just openness and innocence and delight when there's no future. There's nowhere to get to, nothing to achieve, no great experience to have. It's always going to be like this, just the sea, the wind, the sand. It's always going to be like this. And something just begins to give up. There's a feeling of 
beautiful presence and it changes from being a, a place where you have to get somewhere to a place where look you already are here you already are at the end of, end of your sentence at the end of your if only I was you already are there if you just learn and recognize to how to relax that suffering in the heart which is by fully holding it, even bringing it up, even amplifying it. <coughs> and so when we're living a life of committed practice, you really want to you know, examine this and not be frightened of suffering or ashamed of it or anything like that. It's going to really amplify, bring it up in the mind. Take on things that, that give you a little bit of a poke sometimes. See what your mind does, you know. <laughs> so you're not frightened of it, or, or believe in it, or ashamed of it. And it's just this way. And then, when you, when you then when you, when you don't react in that way, then you can actually respond with mindfulness and compassion and hold it. And this is where those those afflictive patterns begin to be released. Anyone? Anyway.